This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage. Um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids 
can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages, between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, Pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having 
more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight. The ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. Utah's Bryan Head Forest Fire, once the biggest in the country, burned over 72,000 acres of land and forest. Currently, crews are still wrapping up and working on containment lines. This brings the question, how much value do U.S. forests actually contribute to the country? Here to speak with us today is Dr. D. Thomas Straka, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Straka, thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad to be there. I uh, appreciate the invitation. You bet. Now, talk to us about, I mean, I don't think most of us even know, you know, what's the difference between, like, you know, uh, the the U.S. Forest Service, who owns the forests, do all of the forest system belong to the citizens of the United States? Maybe just educate us a bit about the Forestry Service, I mean, or the U.S. Forest System. Well, uh, who owns the forest? Uh, it's the U.S. It's usually called the USDA Forest Service because it's in the Department of Agriculture, and they own about twenty percent of wow. the national forest. In other words, uh, of both the forest. And let me give you two definitions to start with. I won't have many. Uh, I want to be talking about forest land, and that's just trees. Uh, trees are growing on land and timberland. Those are trees that are growing that you can make products out of. Okay. And there's a difference. There's about one-third of the United States land area is forest land, and about a quarter is timberland. A little no less, you would think, because that's the better land. Hmm. And the difference is Utah's a good example. When you're riding along and you see that juniper and, and uh, pinion pine, uh, that isn't big enough to make lumber. A lot, a lot, of, a lot yeah. of it is. That's the difference. Okay. It's still forest land, but that's not timberland. So timberland would just be the really tall trees that they could harvest and and make products out of. In general. Okay. That's a, that's a fair definition. Okay. Um, so if I use those terms, I, 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 they're not interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually saying timberland would be product driving. Forest land is, is, is land, property. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, actually, looking at trying to get my figures here in front of me, uh, I said the Forest Service owns twenty uh, percent of, of both, approximately. Uh, the um, 
that you started with a question I'm not ready for. <laughs> That's okay. okay. But so so twenty percent because I this is the big thing while you're looking for your numbers that I didn't understand. A lot of I guess forest and timber land is owned by private enterprise, private companies and families. Uh sixty percent. Wow. Uh, I mean it's it's um uh, uh it's it's surprising. One of the big differences is is uh, private versus public. You hit hit on one of the main issues. I think the two big issues are east versus west, and then uh, the the public versus the private. Mm-hmm. We, um, we we talk a lot about the east west battle because a lot of the times in the west when we hear about wild uh, wild what do they call them wild lands or um, uh, just government owned property and lands, a lot of the West is frustrated because so much of the West is owned by the federal government. Uh, that's public versus private. Yeah. Uh, most of the, you know, you got forest in the East. And when I talk about the East, I'm talking about mainly the Northeast, the Lake States, and the South. Okay. Then you got the Great Plains in between, and the rest I'll call the West. And the West, I'll kind of lump in the Rocky Mountains and, and the Pacific Northwest. That's okay. where most of the trees are. And you, you, those two differences, east versus west, are a big one, and private versus public. Those, those are the the, the two main ones. Uh, looking at, I got some figures in front of me now. The uh, I mentioned. There's, I'll just give you a couple of real quick figures. There's about 766 million acres of forest land and about 500 million acres of timberland, hmm. and there's roughly two and a quarter billion acres in the United States. So the forest, I said, is about a third of the land area, and timberland is about 23%. Wow, yeah. So so roughly a, a third and a quarter. And you can divide it in the regions that that uh, 55% of that's in the east and 45% in the west. Hmm. Not not half and half, but... Yeah. And then you can go between, I won't go between regions and all, all that, but... Um, it can be deceptive, though, that, though, that when you look at forest land or timberland, it's a little bit different. Uh, you look at, uh, there's a lot of timberland just in certain areas of the country. Pacific Northwest, the south, is kind of the wood basket of the country. Um, so getting back to, uh, going back to my ownerships, who owns it? Because I guess, and this is, while you're looking at that, this is this is big business, right? This is producing hundreds of billions of dollars of a value for the country. Yeah, um, in terms of, of economics, uh, let me get my, we're jumping around on figures, and I got them in front of me. But it's it's forty in forty seven states. Uh, you'll find that that forestry uh, timber is one of the top ten manufacturing sectors. People don't realize no. you know, it's a biggie. Um, it's uh, just got a huge, huge. Economic impact. Uh, let's see here. I got the figures, but it, I'll use South Carolina as an example. Yeah. Uh, in our state, it's it's twenty one billions, a billion dollars. Uh, the Forestry Commission just just analyzed the uh, the industry, and depending on how you rank them, do you throw in pulp and paper and lumber, and do you throw in furniture part of the wood? Uh, of course, they were aggressive trying to make forestry look good. It came out number one. Hmm. I, I don't know so though if that's fair, cause, but it compares very favorably with with uh, automobiles and plastics, and so it, it's right up there. And if you want to get tricky with the definitions, uh, you can you can uh, make forestry number one in South Carolina. 
Mm, it's uh, amazing. It's it's huge. No matter you know, you get into some. Kansas doesn't have a big forest products industry. Right. Like In- Oregon, Washington, South Carolina, Maine, places like that. It's huge. In your article, it's a huge part of the country. In your article um, on in the conversation, you you stated that the forest products industry manufactures more than two hundred billion dollars worth of products yearly. I mean, this is why this is such an important resource to to be protecting and to be paying attention to. But what? So we have the east kind of the versus the west. We have the the privately owned versus the publicly owned. What are the big issues that the for these these different Issue that these different, uh, I guess the the um, the competition between east west, the competition between private public. What are the issues that those bring up? Well, you're right. The east versus the west comes into uh, the different different kinds of kinds of timber. Actually, in terms of regulation, you know, the, the south is is pretty open, very receptive to forest industry. Some of the other parts of the country aren't as receptive. Uh, California. Uh, it, it it does make a difference where the lands are, but when the big difference is uh, the forests are divided between the east and the west, and most of the public forests are in the west. Most of the private forests are in the east. And if you look at where the the timber comes from, then that comes from the from the east because that's private. Hmm. And, and what's happened? I can go back and and I've got a chart in front of me. There was a lot of timber produced in the in the west in the 60s up to the 70s. And the environmental movement came in, and justifiably there were some huge issues, clear-cutting. I yeah. like it was in forestry and the Bitterroot in, in, uh, in the West, in, the, in, in West Virginia forest, national forest. And justifiably the public got a pretty bad view of clear-cutting. Uh, the environmentalists managed to get forest management on the national forest pretty much curtailed. And it's... Uh, so now, when you start looking between the two, the fact that there's a lot of public land in the West means timber production has gone way down. You can go to a lot of towns. You're probably familiar with If you know anything yeah. about there were a lot of timber towns, towns. in the West. Yeah, going out of business. Forks, Washington. I, I, I went there one time on a vacation, just happened to be there. Decimated. Hmm. Uh, that's because they, they stopped timber production off, off surrounding lands. Uh, so a big difference in the West is... Uh, Due to environmental pressure, uh, some a lot of it justified. Uh, the forest management, the timber harvesting went down, and that contributed. I'm going to back up to your wildfires. Yeah. Uh, the wildfires. Part of the problem is there's a huge amount of, of biomass. I'll just use a general term. Uh, just a lot of wood out there that can burn, and there's two big reasons I think. One is, and we can fault the Forest Service. There were huge fires about a hundred years ago. Huge. Uh, even I mean bigger than today, yeah, and and killed some people and 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 the Forest Service adopted a policy of uh, put it out as quick as you can, you know, that you know it's Smoky Bear, right, and the fire towers, and that was probably a bad policy because uh, that that let it, that let the growing stock, the biomass accumulate a lot of underbrush, a huge amount of underbrush, and so you've got. I call it poor forest management, just letting that happen, because the natural process is for those forests to burn. They've always burned. And if you get them, when you don't let the biomass get to be at the levels they're at now, they don't burn that hot, and they're not that dangerous. And the other thing is the curtailed forest management. If you have the clear-cutting, not even clear-cutting, just cutting the stands, that's taking timber volume out. Well-managed forest stands don't tend to burn. 
So we've got poorly managed stands because of the shift in the public sentiment, uh, public pressure, environmental oh, pressure interesting. to stop the harvest. So that between the two factors, you've got a huge amount of biomass out there, and it burns. But see, and I, in Utah, you just got done talking about No, absolutely. And I didn't even – and maybe it's biased, but you do hear of more – like fire forest fires in the west then it sounds then it seems like i hear in the northeast um well, like, think uh, back. is that and that, is that because i'm is, sure you're aware of it gatlinburg tennessee yeah you remember that yeah uh there were i think uh, there are thousands of homes and businesses burned yeah i think I'm, i don't have it in front of me 14 lives i'm going to say lives lost mm. and what is that close to gatlinburg's close to the great smoky national park and that's the national parks are different than the national forest. The national this is historical. Historically, the national forest. I'm going to back up to a question you kind of you almost asked. The national forest during the Department of Agriculture, uh, the parks, and the and the BLM are in the Department of Interior. And and you, you should be thinking right now, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they all in the same place? Right. And they're natural resources. Way back, Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, the first chief of the Forest Service, with that title anyhow, uh, they got it in the Department of Agriculture because forests back then were closer to egg product, uh, uh, production. Hmm. Uh, you're growing a product. Uh, they did a lot of management. They still do uh, helping the private landowners. But they looked at that as being producing a crop. And Congress gave them their marching orders back then. Uh, and they supported themselves. They didn't need a budget. They actually put money back in the Treasury. It's, it'd be very easy for the Forest Service to pay all the costs and put money back in the Treasury if they were managing the forest the way they were originally intended to be. The national parks are preserved. There's no timber cutting on the national right. parks. So they're, they're amassing some of these great volumes. And that was what was amassed right next to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So it can happen. In, it does happen in the east, in Florida, okay, in Florida, yeah. in it's not just a, it's mainly a western problem but it really it's not is just a western problem so so there is, there's a there's an interesting um issue going on where because of situational uh i mean because of certain um values and cultural uh, environmental policies we may we're we're probably not we're not cutting so we have more biomass accumulating which then sets up the more fuel for the fire is is who's is are things changing as far as forest management goes are we are we now managing it differently seeing that this is happening or are we just waiting for more fires to take place uh there's there's uh they're asking for money in the budget they have been uh, restorative restorative management uh going out and, and taking some of the high risk stands and actually doing cutting the environmentalists don't like it because they look at it, they say that's an excuse to do timber harvesting. You're just trying to hmm. evade the issue. I don't think that's the case. But but they're asking for money in in the budget to take some of the most critical stands and actually go out and harvest timber, and not for the sense of it will produce timber for for lumber mills. I mean, I mean but but that's not the intent. The intent is to get the biomass down. And even I'm surprised Donald Trump. Well, I'm not really. Donald Trump cut money out of that in his budget. Right. Uh, and the reason was, and I think he has a good point. He said, I'll give you some money. I'm not going to cut it all out. But the Forest Service is going overboard. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving you kind of my impression of what, what, what they're saying between the lines. Yeah. Uh, he said, you've got plenty of money to do the high-risk areas, and that's where you ought to be cutting. 
And there's a philosophy of let it burn. They're, they're moving closer to that and, and trying to decide there are some places you can just let burn. Uh, say it's a wilderness area and there's nothing nearby. Right. It's going to reduce the biomass. And, and what Trump said uh, is maybe I give you plenty of money and you get to high-risk areas, and I'm not going to give you money to get to backwoods. You just leave that burn. Mm. And maybe that, maybe that's a good argument. Yeah. Uh, and the problem, really, if you look out, you can see it in the news, uh, I'm sure in Utah, it's called the Wildland Urban Interface, and that's the people building houses and subdivisions right next to the forest. Right. That didn't used to be out there. And there's always been in wildfire management uh, a priority of saving people first and then buildings and then the forest. Right. That, that was just that's just a Seems rule. Seems like a right the healthy order. A rule. Right. And if you got all of a sudden when you got all this urban uh, wildlife urban interface building against the forest, the, the forest service is spending all their money right there at that at the interface as opposed to being inside the forest. It's becoming a bigger bigger problem. Oh, interesting. They're protecting houses that maybe shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they needed to just stop the building uh, so they can they don't have to make these decisions. We're uh, talking with Professor Tom Straka about the state of the U.S. forest. We'll be back. Continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back. We are talking uh, with Professor Tom Straka, and he is a, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. He's been walking through an article he wrote titled The State of U.S. Forests, uh, six questions that he's answering. And really, he's giving us Forestry 101. It's almost like we're getting a scout merit badge here, Tom. Well, I got a couple figures that you asked earlier. Yeah. I gave you a chance to look them up. The federal government owns about three quarters of the public lands. And state governments, about 20, and then uh, county and locals, uh, the rest of it. And the Forest Service is the largest federal agency in the USDA. I'll just give you the huh. six, $6 million budget, 35,000 employees, 193 million acres. you got to be careful of that because they also manage grasslands. I think it's close to 150 of, of forest land. Uh, it's equivalent to the size of Texas, spread over 44 states in Puerto Rico. Holy cow. And... In terms of uh, federal forest land, uh, the Forest Service uh, has 61%, and the BLM, I think everybody out, uh, everybody in Utah knows what BLM is. Yeah, we hear about the BLM all the time. What percent and, do and they federal, own? Federal timberland, they own 88% of the public now, and the BLM is 6 which okay. makes sense. Yeah. The Forest Service has got the good stuff. Yeah. That's 94% uh, between the two. So the Forest Service controls most of the public timberland. And I'll just give you one more statistic that happens to be on this page. In 1987, the National Forest supplied 17% of the timber harvest in the country. Today, it's 3%. Wow. There's the difference. Yeah, there's the difference. It's the private, then, that's taking off, I guess? Pardon me? Is it the private side that's producing more of it, then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the private's picked it up. Uh, there's, there's no problem with the private. Uh, it's... Matter of fact, private can produce a lot more on, on, on less land. The, the uh, genetics that are involved now, uh, a lot of the land used to be owned by forest industry is not owned anymore by forest industry. But investors picked it up, and they manage it. They're capital intensive. And they put 
super seedlings and genetically superior trees. Hmm. And they're growing a lot more wood on less land. Is it? So there's a huge potential. Matter of fact, I think the intensively managed land, you might the environmentalist will criticize that land, but it's producing so much wood that there's there's slack in the system for conservation groups to come in and, and buy land and conserve it. Really? So, so the private sector is doing a really good job of picking up the slack. But the people that had, there were mills in the West in particular that were located near national forests that they're not there anymore. Right. That, that, that depended on a, a steady supply of wood off the national forest. Well, and this is this is jobs, right? These are jobs. This is this is these are real people. So when we think about trying to create more jobs, um, if a lot of the private company or a lot of the land that's held privately in the east is making most of the money, then really, I guess the West has more has been choked out, I guess, more by environmental policy. Exactly. Uh, What what happened was uh, a change in philosophy of. Of back at the beginning, I said uh, the national forests were production forests. They produced timber, and they produced a surplus that went into the treasury. Hmm. Uh, and then environmental pressure in the '60s, and I said justified. Uh, to, I think it went overboard afterwards, but there were some big issues. The clear-cutting issue uh, was pretty severe. And what happened was, I'll tell you, it's sort of like the, the wildfires. Uh, what happened was, uh, since the clear-cutting was driving the budgets. The Forest Service is a normal organization. If something's driving your budget, yeah. what do you do with it? Yeah. More and more of it. You feed and it. And they kind of went overboard. And, and the environmental state had, had, had an axe to grind, and it was a good one. But to be honest with you, with the wildfires, over half the Forest Service budget now is wildfires. So what do you think is driving the Forest Service? Yeah. Uh, more, and they're trying to get more and more money, and, and they're going to spend it. They don't want more wildfires, but they're going to spend that money. Uh, and there's expensive things. You see the, I'm sure you, you must have a lot of it on television where you're at. Uh, you see these big tankers dropping the yeah. chemicals. That's super, super expensive, and you know, that's necessary. But that's the kind of stuff you can have when you got a big budget. So part of what's driving the Forest Service right now are wildfire budgets. I mean, they don't like wildfires, but they sure like the money. Yeah, and they need and, the money, and, and they got to get it in somehow. And it's a special kind of money. Even Donald Trump cut the Forest Service back quite a bit. But what do you think he left alone? Wildfires. Wildfires. Okay, because that yeah. makes sense. He's not going. He's not going to fool with that. So you've got kind of a safe bet, and that's driving the whole animal right now. Does do, do you see that? I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying, though, is the private the private companies and or the privately owned forest areas and timberland areas they seem to be really better managed. There's not clear cutting like they used to do, um, but and they're better managed. So, wouldn't it make sense that we turn over more of this property to be sold privately? Well, that's the argument, particularly in Utah. Uh, there's a couple states, and Utah's the most vocal. And you've got a law that was passed, I'm going to say in 2012, uh, that says turn the land over to the states. Yeah. And then everybody's, not everybody, but people say, yeah, and then it gets turned over to the private sector. Uh, and and th- so it's a two-step process. Uh, I'll just go with the state and, and not even say turn it over to the private sector. I can look at states, Washington State's a good example. There's a lot of state-managed land out there. Mm-hmm. It's managed, in my opinion, a lot better than the federal lands. They make, you know, they they pay their own budgets. Uh, it isn't, you no know, recreationists aren't deprived from using it. It's really, really managed well. 
So there's no question that, that the record supports that the states can manage the land really well. Right. Uh, so going back to the all the issues that in the local newspapers in Utah, there's a lot of people that feel there's everything from constitutional to other issues that Utah should be treated the state the same as the eastern states, not just Utah, all the west, the various western states. Not all of them. Some mm. of them like the way it is right now, but a lot of them think that land should be turned over and the states could do a better ma- job of managing it. And yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. And but then, is there is it going to have a, a second? shift of going private. I don't have any problem with that unless, is the private really going to be timber management or are you moving towards development? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so, you, so there's, it's a double-edged sword to me that that in general, I, I, I like the idea in general, but I'm not sure if it isn't going to lead to a bad sure. place, a worse place in the long run. Right. Uh, so you got to be careful. What be about? Careful. I'm not sure where it would lead. What, uh, what about this? What going to happen? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prediction. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there's going to be some kind of has to be a change, and the change is going to be some kind of joint federal uh, and, and states. Uh, excuse me, a joint federal state, and uh, where the states have, have a tremendous amount more control and management and, and getting some of the budgets. Huh. I think that would work where you do some kind of joint thing where it's primarily owned by the states with some sort of federal oversight yet, and you're going to have to have that. I think. Because the states don't think it through. Utah hasn't thought it through. Right. Can, can Utah give the land to Utah? That's fine. Do they expect the fire budgets, the federal fire budgets, hmm. to come with it? Right. That, that's what they, they need all the money, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. So so you can't have it both ways. Right. If you want the land, you're going to take the, the entire set of problems, which is a huge, huge amount of, of wildfire budget you'd have to pay for. I'm not so sure that would work. So I think you're headed towards some kind of a, a joint situation. But... Uh, there's a lot of pressure, and, and if my crystal ball says something along those lines will happen. Hmm. What would you suggest? We've only got a couple minutes, but um, when it comes to just the average citizen who, you know, every once in a while gets to go see a beautiful forest who maybe doesn't necessarily live close to one, um, tell us why we need to pay attention, why they matter, why any of this should matter to the average citizen. Ecosystem services. They're a part of the... I just said they're a third of, of the country, of, of the land base. Uh, they, they provide all kinds of services you don't think about. Uh, fundamental ones from... You now, there's carbon being sucked into them and oxygen coming out of them. Right. Uh, you start looking... Uh, the key reason they were originally saved, the national forest, wasn't timber... Uh, timber production was big, but it wasn't the biggie. The biggie was watersheds. There were tremendous floods after the clear cuts. The people, they weren't even sure how forest hydrology worked, but one thing they were sure about was after you clear cut the forest, particularly in mountainous country, there, were, there was tremendous damage. Soil erosion and, and, and water shed problems uh, were tremendous. Uh, so there's a whole set of ecosystem service, services provided, fundamental ones, if you want to exist, because water and air are really important things. Hmm. Uh, then you're into the other ones, you know, the wildlife, the recreation, uh, the aesthetics, just just the aesthetics. Uh, and then you you can get into bigger problems. The, they have a huge impact on, on climate change, a positive impact on, on climate change. Uh, so you're looking at something that, that is fundamental to, to the entire, just look at the state, the entire state. And then I can get into any state, almost any state you want. Uh, I said in 47 states, they're in the top 10 manufacturing sectors. A huge part of the economy is tied mm. into that. 
And then that, that, that economy is tied into it because most everybody listening probably goes to Home Depot or Lowe's. Or, or, right. And, and those those two-by-fours came from someplace. <laughs> and most of them from the – well, a lot of them from the United States. There's imports and exports. We, when, you, when you net it, most of it is, is produced here one way or the other. When we, when we trade with somebody, we get a lot back. Um, it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of the environment, and it's in, in most places around the country. It's a huge part of everybody's everyday life. No, it really is, and especially just in our world. In my own, and I guess it's living in the West is part of the benefit of that too. Is everything you mentioned from uh, recreation, aesthetics, climate change, watersheds, all of these things, boating, all the fun stuff that happens in and around these mountains. Um, and uh, forestry areas, boy, it, it's great for family, it's great for life, it's great for health. So, Professor Tom Straka, we appreciate you and your work you're doing there at uh, Clemson University, and uh, glad to have you on the show. We'll take a break. Come back. Man, be grateful for all you've been blessed with, including this incredible world. We'll be back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Um, as we, again, just talked about uh, the state of U.S. forests, it, it does get into this issue of management, this issue of leadership. Peter Drucker, one of the great leadership consultants and leadership thinkers, um, uh, taught that management is doing things right Leadership is doing the right things. And as we think about our forest service and our forestries, uh, boy, do we not need to do both, right? We need to make sure we manage them properly, especially when it comes to, you know, cutting the biomass, cleaning out uh, the forest so that it does – we don't need to let them just burn, um, but also using, the, using them effectively, making sure we're protecting some of the natural resources, also making sure we're protected, protecting some of the, you know, critical species that live in that habitat. But I guess also importantly is making sure we're doing the right things. And uh, one of the things I worry about in leadership in general is we have the loudest – voice tends to win the race, not necessarily the most effective policy. And it it scares me a little bit that we, we make a, an environmental decision because some people were clear-cutting and destroying the environment. So then we make a decision that now 30, 40 years later is not proving to pay off anymore as more and more fires take off. And also jobs are being lost and communities destroyed. So we need some leadership, don't we? And where's that going to come from? Well, it'll come from Washington. Well, maybe it won't. Or it'll come from you demanding a higher level of leadership and you yourself getting more involved. So that's one of the reasons we bring you these topics so that you can be informed. And when you're sitting at dinner with your friends, you can make some informed conversation. That's uh, hour number one of the program, folks, here to help you be the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt 
Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out, watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It 
it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's it, – It sounded right. It sounded hear? like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart. She just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something... You can't always do when you find something strange in your meal, you know? Hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, (sighs) the reason we do what we do and why we do it. It's And we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it, it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why? Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, 
um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at a at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't always, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and – Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Touch your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons – This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? 
Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everyone has experienced that moment of annoyance with somebody at work who is amazing at their job but not so great with workplace relationships. Put kindly, many companies have tolerated brilliant people who, you know, do amazing things in what they do, except they lack empathy. They don't know how to relate to those that they work with. But that is beginning to change. Companies are now putting more resources into training their employees to not only be good at their job, but to actively strive to build stronger relationships with their coworkers. Here to talk to us about uh, this movement and uh, the, the basically the theory behind the movement of emotional intelligence is uh, Dr. Steven Stein. He's the author of the book, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Great to be with you, Matt. Give us uh, just kind of a definition, a, a starting definition of what is emotional intelligence for those that haven't heard. Sure. Well, a very simple way to understand it is through three things. The first is being aware of your own emotions as well as being aware of the emotions of others around you. The second is the ability to manage your own emotions as well as managing the emotions of others around you. And the third area is the ability to use emotions, to get things done, to make decisions, to manage stress. In a nutshell, that, uh, that sort of encompasses much of what we refer to as emotional intelligence. And it, so it's being able to kind of be aware of it and manage it uh, and enroll people into my emotion, but also being aware of others' emotions as well, right? And managing, helping to manage their emotion. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is it, we, we hear about it being kind of the new kind of level of intelligence where it's, um, I guess it's better than IQ and your your memory or your your typical measurement of intelligence but how how is emotional intelligence actually benefit us more than our intellect well they're all pretty important but one way to think about it is it's your iq that sort of gets you hired gets you in the job you know people look for that uh harvard graduate or yale graduate to get you started but what really gets you promoted once you start working is going to be your emotional skills, your abilities to manage people, manage yourself, and and so on. Yeah. Is how do you see emotional intelligence um, playing out in in today's work environment? Is it is it as valued as it should be? And is are we really training people toward that end? Well, I tell you, we started talking about this stuff about twenty five years ago. So. It's been a long haul that we've been 
trying to promote this concept. And yeah, I think it's it's much stronger now than it was when we first started. People laughed at us and said, you know, emotions at work. What are you crazy? And and now it's becoming pretty well accepted. Where as long as you have two people uh, that have to interact with each other, it's going to be important. Also, we talk about millennials and the whole issue about motivating millennials, we again see the importance of emotional intelligence. Hmm. That's so true. Huh? And I mean, in a way, they it seems like a millennial might demand more authenticity, more empathy and treatment, uh, but maybe better treatment emotionally if you want to get the performance out of them. Absolutely. Like a lot of us boomers, you know, we like to complain about those millennials, but the reality is they have a lot to offer in the workplace. You know, I mean, what do we know about social media and a lot of these other things that are coming up the pipe and our ability to manage millennials to understand, you know, what it is they really are looking for, which is, you know, some support, more support than we used to get when we started work. Hmm. What? So if I'm a if I'm a really good emotionally intelligent leader, and and I I get how to I am aware of my emotion I manage my emotion well and I can read people pretty well and their emotion. What does that get me to do? What what what's the outcome of me with my people? What am I able to do that other leaders aren't? Well, what we found is that your people be much more engaged in the workplace. You know, they'll they'll uh, value you more. They'll value the work more and uh, they'll get along better. You'll have much stronger and cohesive teams. Uh, people work together. Uh, we've done this research over 25 years and the effects of having an emotional intelligent leader are just incredible, especially when you compare two leaders side by side, one high on emotional intelligence and one who's pretty medium or low on it. Yeah. So is this why you wrote the book? I mean, if this, if we've been researching emotional intelligence for 25 years, what uh, what was your motivation for the book? Uh, well, again, I, I, uh, for 25 years, I've been looking mainly at, at, at work in general, like how does it affect the way we work. But in the last six or seven years, the conversation has really turned around leadership. And I think in the book, I, I cite a, a widespread Deloitte study showing about the, the dearth of leaders, that that's a major issue in today's workplace. So, And the publisher called me up and said, you know what, we really need something new in the leadership uh, mm. space and emotional intelligence is the direction that people seem to be, you know, going. Jack Welch talks about emotional intelligence. Many of the, the leaders who've understood or learned about this and started to understand it have seen how important it is. And um, in the very title of the book, uh, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, Building Meaningful Organizations, um, really, is this because we keep hearing over and over, and you mentioned the word engagement about how like 70 percent, according to a Gallup poll, I think, 70 percent of employees are disengaged. Is it is it because we lack kind of the emotional connection to work or is something else going on? Well, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, one is if you're doing the kind of work that you're suited for, if it's the right kind of work and if it's the right environment, and then this whole issue of connecting with the people at work. You know what? We love our jobs when we love the people that we work with and we love the environment. If we can't get along with the people, we don't like our boss, who wants to show up at work? You know, I mean, we, it, it's a pain. It is a pain. And then, I mean, because it's, I guess that's the thing now is it's almost like we have a lot of free agents where, and we, I guess we saw in the NBA draft this year, having a lot of free agents can create some chaos because they're free to go, right? And they'll take their goods, they'll take their energy, their passion, their, their incredible results, I guess, wherever they feel most connected and most appreciated. 
Absolutely. And you look like organizations like uh, Google and Amazon. I mean, they have no trouble attracting talent. Uh, and because they use some of these techniques in their organizations, they get the best talent. Is is there one of the things I worry about, and I've trained for leadership companies and gone in and done a lot of uh, organizational development work, is this is the concern that what we teach kind of comes off and, and almost produces more uh, inauthentic people or kind of more – I call it technique people that just run the technique that you're teaching them of how to make people feel like you care instead of actually caring. Is there a danger to that? There always is a danger to that. People can try and fake it, and that's why the four pillars that I identify in the book, the first one is authenticity, and that's all about being real. And especially the younger, the millennials today can sense when you're faking it. They're really good. They have those antenna up and say, oh, my God, he's putting me on again. Um, so you do have to learn how to be real. And that's why when you, you learn emotional intelligence, the, the good thing is you can learn or improve in it. It's going to require something more than just a lecture or reading a book. As much as I want to sell books, it's going to require some element of coaching or going out in the real world and getting certain kinds of experiences that increase your abilities in these areas. Yeah, I call it like the tacit skill. Like you've got – with emotional intelligence, it's not learned just intellectually. It's, earned, it's, it's learned emotionally. You have to feel it to know it. Exactly. It's like, it's like balancing experience. a bike, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's an experience. You have to go and do it. We've been working on some uh, experiential um, uh, programs to help people – you know, go off for a day and, and do experiences where they actually learn these skills. But you got to do it in order to really gain the ability. You know, you got to practice being assertive. You got to practice empathy. I can tell you what it means, but it's not going to get you there. Hmm. Maybe run through the other pillars. What? So authenticity is one of the pillars. Give us the other three. Well, the second one is coaching. That's uh, you know, today as a as a leader, you can't just go tell people what to do and then walk away. We have to make sure that they have what they need. They have the support. Uh, we're checking, we're, we're helping them. Uh, if you don't have the tools you need and the emotional support you need, you're just not going to get the best job done. Hmm. The next one, the third one, we call it insight. But what it means is really the ability to communicate a purpose to the work. If you just want your people to come to work for a paycheck, well, it's going to be very transactional and you're not going to get a lot of engagement, as we talked about earlier. You've got to have a purpose. You've got to have a real reason why we're here. We're here to do something different, something unique. We're going to change the world. Whatever it is, you know, we spend time with organizations helping them find out what is the purpose, what motivates their people. And the, the final one is the area of, of innovation. You know, disruption is everywhere in business today. We see it in the taxi business, the hotel industry. They're all getting blown away. So to be a good leader today, you have to think in an innovative way. You have to take risks, challenges. You have to let your employees take risks. And don't be afraid of letting them fail. Hmm. And I guess that goes back to emotional intelligence because if – if I'm an emotional, emotionally intelligent leader, I will make the space safe for you to fail, and, and I help coach you back on the horse. Exactly. I mean, the important thing about failure is that you learn something. You know, we in our organization, we have lots of opportunities where people try new things, different things. They may do something that's costly. As long as they come back and say, look, this is what we've learned. You know, we won't replicate that same mistake. We're going to change things. We're going to do something different as a result of it. Is do you sense that we are we have a dearth of emotional intelligence? Is there is there a vacuum there? Do we lack it? Is, and is it something that we? It, it almost sounds like these are skills that we should be teaching 
younger instead of just hoping to get everyone up to speed once they get out of college. Absolutely. And uh, we've been trying to put our efforts at, at moving down the pipeline, as yeah. well. I do have a book out for college students as well, which is Building Emotional Intelligence for College Students, because that's what, lack of emotional intelligence is the, one of the biggest reasons that students don't make it through college. It's not because of IQ or some of these other things. It's because of these emotional issues. So, yeah, and then we're pushing it in high schools and, and, and trying to get it down earlier. It would be great if we taught these skills earlier. But let's start with where we need them right now in, in the working world. Uh, I lecture at business schools where uh, many of them are just starting to discover these skills and starting to teach these skills to business students. Oh, that's so cool. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break, Steve. We'll come back and continue the discussion about emotional intelligence and the importance of emotional intelligence as a leader in today's business world and life in general. We're speaking again with Dr. Steven Stein, author of the book, The EQ Leader. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. If you've ever uh, been in a situation where you just couldn't believe the person next to you at work would say such a thing or would lose their cool, would ignore you or go off, and it really was making uh, getting results at work difficult, then maybe it's emotional intelligence we're lacking. And our guest today, Stephen Stein, is uh, the author of the book, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. He joins us today. He's a clinical psychologist. He's also uh, um, been validating these principles um, scientifically for more than 30 years. Dr. Stephen Stein, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Matt. Is And one of the points that may have slipped by everybody is emotional intelligence, you said earlier, it's it's teachable pretty much, right? So by and large, we can educate and improve our ability to be aware, to manage emotion, and to enroll people into emotion. Absolutely. We've seen some great studies carried out where people, and we've had them with control groups where those, uh, one group being taught and another group not being taught, uh, and mainly the teaching is through coaching, through actual experiential coaching, where you get to do assignments, you go out each week, try being assertive, try being empathic, less impulsive, and so on. And we've shown that people have, in, have, have dramatically changed their behavior as a result of this. Hmm. Is it a cultural thing? I mean, is would we see more emotional intel- intelligence in other cultures, in other uh, parts of the world than we see in the West, or is this is this a Western phenomenon? No, we've been working around the world. In fact, I recently got back from China where we've tested people there as well, and we've tested people in the Middle East and South America. We're working globally with this concept, and what we find, which is amazing, is that the concept of emotional intelligence resonates everywhere in the world that I travel. People just really love this concept because it's so simple, basic, it's, it's intuitive. And uh, there are variations in our culture. Some cultures are higher than others in certain skills that we talk about. But it's really interesting to see how they play out cross-culturally. Um, I, I wonder, too, I, I feel like uh, a lot of times these ideas, I think universally the principles all apply to every level of humanity and whatever your role. But I also feel like you know, if I'm the guy that um, 
is sweeping up the floors at night after all of the stockbrokers go home. Um, what? How will emotional intelligence help me in my world to to maybe take my job to the next level or and become the best I can be um, when I might have less power in the organization when I might have less say. Well, it's how you look at your job. I mean, one thing is your motivation. I mean, you could be the sweeper who just sort of slacks off for half the time and, and only works for part of the time. Or you could be the one who's really motivated and say, hey, I'm really optimistic about this. I know if I do a good job sweeping here, I may able, be able to you know, move my way up into the mailroom. And then from there, maybe start becoming a trader. Who knows? So it's the way in which you deal with your own emotions in that case that's really important. Is You keep talking, too, about... Um I guess, uh, like coaching. You use the word coaching, and that's one of your four pillars. How do you, as a, because you're, you're, a, you're a clinical psychologist, you, you're used to doing, uh, you know, psychiatric or psychological interventions with people. Uh, is, what's the difference between coaching versus, you know, kind of doing a clinical practice with somebody? And is it something that any boss can do? Is it something that a parent can do with their kids? Absolutely, and it is quite different. Um, my clinical psychology hat is quite different from my business hat where I run an organization with 150 people. And as a business leader, my one of the things I do as coaching is the old adage of walking around. I walk around and talk to people and see how they're doing and what are their challenges and you know how are things going today. And any business leader can do that. Walk around, talk to your people, listen to them, which is one of the most important things we teach. Listen to what they're saying, what's going on in their world, because we don't often get access to that sitting up as leaders. Hmm. What would you suggest to us as parents who want to raise more emotionally intelligent children? What can we do to start engaging some of these pillars in our family at younger ages, whether it's authenticity, coaching, insight, innovation? Well, one of the things, of course, that's important with our kids is coaching. Uh, At my stage, I do it with my grandchildren. Yeah. It's important for me when I sit with them to really listen to them and to watch them. We don't spend enough time just letting them play, letting them do their own thing. I sit with my grandson while he does his plays with his Legos and my granddaughter while she's playing around with her dolls, and and we play together, and I let them lead the play. We, we, We tell stories together where I tell a piece and then he tells the next piece. So it's really paying attention to them, letting them have a role in the game that you're playing with them. Is that what you mean in your book by autonomous thinking? Absolutely. The, you know, we teach them at that young age to start making their own choices and to go their own way. If I take a story, for example, in a certain direction and my four-year-old grandson wants to go in a different direction, well, I let him take the story in his direction. Yeah. And what's cool about that, too, is the more you allow people around you to do that, the more you come to know the people. Absolutely. Um, one of my daughters is into improv, and they use this whole concept of yes and, yeah. right, where they add to what the other person is doing. And that's so important in sort of acknowledging and validating the other person's role. It, um, I, I see it a lot because your kids will come in and they'll, they'll say, Dad, what am I supposed to do about this? And they really want the answer, it seems like. Um, and, and what's funny is it's, I, a lot of times it's just easier to give them the answer. Instead right, of kind of putting it back on them. Absolutely. And, and this ranges from the whole level. I was called in once from one of the world's most famous consulting companies, and their issue was that they were so quick at giving their clients the answer that it was causing them trouble. So we had to teach them to slow down, ask more questions, 
uh, be patient and let the person sort of come up with the answer somewhat by themselves or with guidance. What do you do if, and help us through that a little bit, if you don't answer the question, do you just turn it back with another question or how do you kind of prompt them into thinking on their own? Well, we do. Uh, we can ask the question. We can ask it a different way. We can give clues. We can say, well, what about this thing? Do you think this might work? Do you think that might work? What would happen if you worked this all the way through to the end? Mm. And we really get them to problem solve and think about it and use emotion appropriately as they do that. Does uh, it's, it's really funny, even, even just asking, what, what have you tried already? Tell me what you've already thought through. I mean, that very idea, because a lot of times with my kids, I'll ask, I don't know, what have you... Where have you already looked? What have you tried to do to figure this out? And a lot of times it's nothing. That's right. It's a great starting point. I mean, it may be nothing. It may be something that they didn't try very hard at or that it was the wrong time. But, you know, it gives you a place to start exploring what's going on Hmm. with that issue. What do you suggest, too, we do um, when we – because we know risk-taking is important. We know we want – we, and we need our people to be willing to stick their neck out a little bit. What are some things that we should be doing as leaders to, to allow risk-taking and, and, and maintain some safety for them? Well, there's different levels of that. And, and in our organization, we sort of take it to about the maximum level. We, put, we have an annual hackathon where people self-form teams and they come up with ideas and ways to improve the business, come up with new products. And we give rewards to people for coming up with these. And they have to do business plans. It's a huge experience that you can put in your organization. And it's an amazing social and learning experience as well. And we found that as a way for people to actually come up and present things and take risks. And then we carry out some of the ideas that they've, they've come forward with and see if they work. That's great. Now, do, you, do you give them time in the day to go work on it and then give them a month to do, do an activity? It pretty much, yeah. We start off, they have a month or two to start planning. We have rules, we have guidelines, and then we have a full day of the hackathon where uh, people are working together in teams all over the organization. The senior management acts as consultants. If they need help with the accounting group, for example, in the business plan or the marketing group, they go to the head of marketing or the head of accounting, and they work together in these uh, self-directed teams, and they do a, a Dragon's Den presentation on the, the end of the week on the Friday uh, in front of the whole organization. Each team gets up and does their presentation. They have something like six or seven minutes to present. How awesome is that? So that really ends up being your people kind of not doing their job of their typical job, but instead working on the business. Absolutely. They completely learn to think of the business and work on the business, do a business plan. Um, it's amazing what it does for them. And they work cross-functionally, right? Because you have yeah. marketing people and programmers and uh, customer service people all joining together and bringing their unique perspectives to each other. And then at the end, uh, I'm assuming the leadership teams would adopt some of the ideas, take on some of the ideas, and then, I guess, pass on some? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a, a, we have a, a, an award, rewards for the top three, $1,000 for the, wow. the top one. And then we've put together a little innovation hub, a group that actually implements the top uh, three or four ideas. And we've been doing that for several years now. That is an amazing thing. And again, a very simple activity, kind of formalized. We, we saw it here even at BYU Broadcasting where uh, one of our, our director um, ended up leaving. And in the interim, they brought in kind of a, an interim director, but that interim director had a lot of power and went um, 
around and sat down with every department and had conversations. And it was amazing how just hearing and allowing your people to talk could open a lot of innovation, a lot of ingenuity. Absolutely. I mean, we have such talent in the organization, and a lot of it goes unused. We don't tap all the talent that they have. So we have to provide opportunities for people to open up and to take risks and to try new things. Hmm. Other than getting your book, The EQ Leader, uh, what would you suggest as we as we wrap up here would be maybe the one or two things that each of us could do today to improve our emotional intelligence? Well, the first thing I think we can do is we can try and listen a little more carefully to whoever we're going to be interacting with next. Let's try and listen to what they're really saying. You know, how are you? Fine. Well, you know, are you really fine? Like, let's try and with that third ear, try and find out what they're trying to say. Pay attention to that. Um, another thing we could do is really look at the way that we see the world. Are we the optimist or the pessimist? And I think we can try looking at things from a different light. If we put more of a positive spin on things that we're doing, uh, we can be a little bit happier. It's powerful. And when one person's happier, it seems like we're all happier. We appreciate your time. Dr. Steven Stein, the name of the book is The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. Boy, oh boy, who wouldn't want more authenticity, coaching, insight, and innovation at their workplace? Well, apparently emotional intelligence is where we can begin for that. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, wrap up. We'll be wrapping up hour number two of the program. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, Nothing more difficult, it seems like, than losing someone you care about. And so many big decisions you got to make, you, you know, funeral arrangements have to be made. You have to go through what they've left behind, maybe possibly sell a house, a yard sale. And even more difficult at times, uh, they might have a request that you spread their ashes and that Somewhere. can be difficult. It's more a, difficult than you would think. You would think it wouldn't be difficult. It's just ashes, just spread them. Not a big deal. Well, uh, <laughs> there are a few things um, that that can get in the way, though. Um, Liz Hobson was dutifully spreading her deceased mother's ashes from a bridge in Newcastle, England, when a strong wind blew them direct, directly back into her face. <laughs> yep, she unfortunately got a dusting of her mother's remains. Hobson tried her best to shake the ash off as her family cracked up with laughter. Hobson's daughter, Liz, shared the clip on YouTube, noting that this was uh, her grandmother's way of getting the last laugh. Don't worry, the family said. They later successfully released their grandmother's ashes in other locations important to her across England. See, that's the kind of thing that would kill in my family. If what that if? happened, if somebody decided they wanted to be cremated and that happened at the funeral, <laughs> it, we'd be in stitches. And in a way, it might be a nice spirit, right? The spirit of laughter, nothing better. Except when you're trying to have a somber moment of letting Nana out in the river. Although if I had lived a long, full life and that was me who had been cremated and my ashes went everywhere into somebody's face, I would, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what you do is you, you go to the windiest place on earth and then you ask your enemy to release your ashes. <laughs> but some people might, you know, they just 
might throw the you know the urn in the in the water. Anyway, so watch out for that. Just we're here to help every way we can. Uh, also, you got to watch out for thieves. This was a really interesting, I guess, uh, robbery spree. I don't know what we're going to call this. Uh, it's almost more like a shopping spree. An overnight theft spree in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, ended up with an arrest of a New York man who uh, last week, according to police, they say Joseph Bishop, 25, allegedly entered 18 unlocked vehicles, stealing various items from each. Now, you won't believe what he stole, though. From the police report, the items that were taken, one brown wallet, one gray wallet, seven lighters, one camera, one Nikon camera, uh, three packs of Tic Tacs, two flashlights, one small tape measure, one roll of used electrical tape, and one pair of headphones. So really just everything in the car. It's pretty much everything I bought at Walmart (laughs) last week. An owner's manual. (laughs) But it's funny. It really was kind of like a shopping spree, right? Wendy's napkins. He also got four USB chargers. Because you could, you know, you need a charger everywhere you go. One small baggie full of pens. Some wet wipes. Hmm. 27 CDs and DVDs. About $30 in loose change. And not to forget the doggy. Seven dog treats. Oh, so he was doing it for his dog. Well, and apparently a baby. Yeah. And, but it's just, it's really, and again, that's a very easy theft. And is it even, I guess that it's, 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 it's petty theft, right? Because everything, all the cars were unlocked. You didn't have to break anything. And it is a tape measure. And you never know when you're going to need a tape measure. Do you know how the cops finally caught up with them? How? Oh, when you walk with those yeah. in your pocket, tic tac walk. Everybody knows where you are. So tacky. That little uh, that walk. There's nothing. There's nothing that is more likely to get you killed in nature than walking with a bunch of tic tacs in your pocket. Is that especially that orange flavor? Mm. See, but the orange they don't last very long at my house because they just they're addictive. You just pop them. You pop them like pills. Um, so I guess the moral of the story is lock your car. Or maybe leave a shopping list, leave a little note where, hey, this is what I've got in my car. And maybe that maybe you ought to be careful what you leave in your car because apparently you can't even leave a charger anymore or Tic Tacs. When my house was uh, broken into one time before I got married, yeah. my granola bars were stolen. Really? So he's yeah. obviously a college student. Or somebody that had the munchies. <laughs> Depends where you live, huh? Anyway, crazy stuff, folks. See, this is the information you don't get everywhere else. You don't hear about the shopping robbery sprees where, yay, I'll take a little bit of everything and some dog treats to go. That's hour number two of the program. We'll take a break, and then we'll come back, continuing the journey to help you be the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They've, they've We're misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. 
So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues. And you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I, I, want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question and they're like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise, but you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if, if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, One reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person, uh, unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them. And uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't. My son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, 
But before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because, and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So – First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's – it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want I, – I don't want to make a mistake and – I feel like I might be pushing him too hard, but then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son and – She's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like you know retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. 
Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you, you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave him that advice. Be careful, the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, do uh, do only boring people get bored? Do you remember as a teenager or even a, a even a younger child complaining that you're bored, Mom? I'm bored. And do you remember getting that big lecture from your parents? You can't be bored. You've got the best life in the world. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of guilt. I think a lot of just assumptions that we make about people that can get bored, and so we wanted to bring in. The uh, the expert, Mary Mann, and her book, Yawn Adventures in Boredom. And she studied boredom and is uh, is going to walk us through some of her lessons. And they're really profound life lessons about being bored. And we're honored to have you, Mary. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is such a fun uh, undertaking. Well, first of all, what drove you to so deeply explore the adventures in boredom? Uh, I started thinking about it um when I was in college, I was in a writing program for graduate school, and 
everyone was so worried about being boring in their in their work. Right. Um, it's sort of baseline. Like you don't want to offend people, you don't want to hurt people, but none of that. Nobody will even notice those things if they're not reading it in the first place. If it's not interesting. So that was like the big concern, and I started to think about what's this thing that's so scary? Um, why is being boring so scary? And that sort of then led me on to being bored and that also being scary or shameful. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of shame around it, isn't it? I guess, where do you sense that shame comes from? Uh, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, that I thought about a lot working on this book, and there's a couple different different places. A lot of it, like you, like you said, um, comes from childhood when we're told, you know, don't be bored. And some of that, I think, just from talking to parents, comes from just exasperated parents who are sometimes also bored and dealing with a lot of stuff. Um, and when they hear their kids complain, they're like, ah, I, either, either maybe they worry that they're not doing a good job, um, like they haven't raised kids with, with the abilities to think of stuff to do, or maybe that their kids aren't grateful enough for mm. things. Um, but most of the parents that I talked to, their main concerns were not their kids being bored, but their own feelings of boredom and their concerns that them being bored um, with their kids meant that they didn't love them enough. Oh, which wow. Which is another, like, shameful thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, so when your child says they're bored, it almost vibrates your fears, your history, your ability as a parent. Oh, boy, it really it kind of resonates deeply inside you. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that comes up for people with boredom. Isn't that weird? It's a, it's a feeling of failure sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, and what is – so if you had to describe boredom, I mean, what is it? What – is it is it is it a feeling? Is it emotional? What what is it, or what isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. It's a feeling. Um, it's usually experienced as like an irritable restlessness. Um, so it's not it's not the same as listlessness. You're not just lying there. You're you want to be. You want to not be bored. Yeah, it motivates you. It's a motivating force because it motivates you not to want to be bored, and that's. Researchers who've studied this have actually found that motivation is sort of the, one of the key things that separates the experience of boredom from the experience of depression, which it highly correlates with. Oh, interesting. So um, it, the big key to boredom is it's a driver. It's, 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 I guess, it's a natural response that's supposed to motivate us. Yeah, that's definitely some, some people have, have posited that that's the reason why we feel it, because it is kind of a thing like this is uncomfortable, nobody likes it, why do we have this feeling? Um, and some people have posited that it's because boredom helps us figure out what we want to be doing, what, are, what feels purposeful to us. But it is tied, in a way, to depression. It is, yeah, it's correlated with it. There is a difference um, between sort of chronic boredom, when everything feels boring all the time, and momentary, like situational boredom, the chronic stuff is especially correlated to depression. Hmm. Um, situational is a sort of different kettle of fish. Yeah. But um, I guess in our, in our process of this, I mean, if, if we, you know, it's probably important to look at boredom as a driver because then we can just ask the question, you know, what is it pushing me to? What is it telling me? Instead exactly. of, Instead of just trying to occupy it or, you know, dismiss it or get rid of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's certainly a good way to make it useful, like make it sort of work for you if you're going to feel it anyway. Right. If you're going to chase this dragon anyway, you may as well. <laughs> you may as well do it. So, but it, it's it's a natural, I guess, occurring thing. Um, what what are some other what are the what are some of the deep lessons you've learned about about its benefits, its and its and its problems? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the big things that I learned is that it's been around for forever. I think we tend to think of it as sort of a modern thing, um, maybe a maybe a privileged thing, mm-hmm. and it is to the degree that it does involve. Um, like you have to have some some amount of privilege to be able to complain about it. <laughs> yeah. Um not to feel it, but to be able to complain about it and uh be heard certainly, but there was there's a time before the word boredom existed in English and the word interesting. Um and that was before the industrial revolution, before people had choices about what they were going to do for a livelihood or even like whether they were going to be there was no social mobility. Um, so at least in English, there was no word for it. Really? Um, but interestingly enough, there was this, this religious term, asadia, hmm. and yeah. monks have been complaining about this since like the fourth century, this feeling of, um, restlessness and, um, I could, I could actually quote something that some monks wrote. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's there's this fourth century monk named Cassian who lived with these guys called the Desert Fathers, who were these monks that lived in the desert. Hence the name <laughs> sounds like a bad um, group, the Desert <laughs> Fathers. Yeah, it's a good band name. <laughs> That's cool. Um, but they they were trying to get as cut off as they could and and be as devoted as they could. And they their biggest challenge was this thing that they thought of as this invisible enemy, which. And that here's where the quote begins, which we may describe as tedium or perturbation of heart, inducing such lassitude of body and craving for food as one might feel after hard toil. Ooh. Finally, one gazes anxiously here and there and sighs that no brother of any description is to be seen approaching. One is forever in and out of one's cell, gazing at the sun as though it were tarrying to its setting. Mm. And it just reminds me of... Um, like if you're if you're working an office job that you're not crazy about and you're bored and you're staring at the clock, tedium, yeah, gazing at the sun. It's a similar it's a similar kind of thing. Boy, and it's interesting that then we we as time progressed as we moved out, I guess, of the into the industrial revolution, then this concept of boredom could we could find a word for it. And yeah, boredom yeah. was born. Boredom was born. The word, I guess. It was already, I guess, apparently 5th century they were feeling it. Is it So is it culturally, uh, it, it obviously is, it's, I guess it's culturally impacting. I mean, if you were bored, I'm assuming a lot of problems can start from boredom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's not a feeling that is either good or bad. It's kind of how you respond to it and how you're able to respond to it. So something that... Um, also is concurrent with boredom a lot is the feeling of being trapped. Mm. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, um, like small crime, petty crimes committed out of boredom. Um, there's a, there's a lot of drug use, a lot of drinking, um, that happens out of boredom. Boredom has been, um, 
found to be a cause of violence, especially in prisons when people have no outlet. Um, and there's actually a linguist, Claire Hardiger, who found that boredom was one of the chief motivations for online bullying as well. Oh, really? I've even heard boredom. Um, I've heard anxiety and boredom are two of the biggest drivers of kind of addictive porn use. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? It definitely is. Uh, so you're looking for some stimulation in your life. Yeah, um, and people have done studies on that. Actually, boredom, boredom, and and sex is a big a big research study topic. Yeah, and I, um, I guess that the idea of wanting uh, something new, something stimulating. Yeah, to feel to feel something other than boredom, really, um, and I think that that's a big motivator for those things. When you're when you're using it for something more productive. It's not so much to feel anything at all other than boredom, but it, there's a little more focus to it, which helps. Yeah. It's, boy, it's, it, you, you've, you've apparently, Mary, touched on the big nerve. I mean, this is a huge, this is a huge driver. This is a huge part yeah. of our existence today. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not just me either. There's, there's, um, I don't want to toot my own horn because there's yeah. so many researchers that I got so much information from. Um, it's really been something people have especially been researching in the last couple decades. And I think that's because we do have so much, so many more ways to distract ourselves now. Mm -hmm. um, and we're finding, and in studies people are finding, that that's not making a difference. Like people still get bored. And so now we're wondering, like, so what's the deal? Yeah. Well, maybe because we have this assumption, it, all this stuff would take us out of this boredom, and yet it might dig us deeper into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly lowering our, our thresholds for it. Um, so I'm not sure if we're feeling it more or less than we did before. Not Probably not that much less. Um, but it's more like it's harder to handle. There's actually... Um, Bertrand Russell, I think it was, this philosopher in the early part of 20th century who lived through the invention of radio and television, hmm. said that um, we're less bored than our ancestors are, but we're more afraid of boredom. And that might be more the problem. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah then what are you? You live in this incredibly advanced age where more choices, more technology, more entertainment, all of these things are at your hand and you're still bored? Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually, there was a study a couple of years ago, MTV did, that found that global, globally, teenagers still, 97% of them are often bored. And one of the most boring things, according to them, is mindlessly surfing the internet. Hmm. So it's, um, it's not doing that much to help us necessarily. Some cases it does. I mean, sometimes you find something funny or something that makes you think. So I don't want to I don't want to put a kibosh on the internet by any means. No, right. I mean it apparently it's here to stay, Mary. Yeah. It's not going away. <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> I mean that's what Homer Simpson said. I think it's here to stay. Um and then you wonder um but there's some deeper longing it seems like that this that we're really trying to be or I guess we're driving we want to be driven to. We want something deeper is that what it is? Yeah, something, it, that's what it seems like, certainly. Um, purpose, basically. Um, 
And that is, I think, thinking back to the monks, I think that's, that partly is why situational boredom can feel like a failure, especially if you're doing something that you do feel is purposeful. When you're feeling boredom in a moment, it can feel like all of that is no longer true. Um, and that's scary. It's a lot of pressure to put on a thing. To totally. say that, like, if I love something, I'll never be bored with it. Right. I mean... But it almost seems like you need to love it and it needs to challenge you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, there's definitely, there's, um, and I always butcher his name. Um, Chick Sent Me High? Yes, Chick Sent Me High. Yeah. Um, the thing about flow being sort of between between something that's too easy and too hard. No, exactly. And so it's it's interesting, and boredom is, maybe that's the, the, I don't know, the little ticker, the driver that starts to push us to either elevate the difficulty of it or, uh, you know, adjust the adventure. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's kind of a cool, I mean, I I had never, I don't know, it's so weird. I had never thought of boredom at all like this, Mary. I, I guess never this deeply. I just, maybe I was always trying to avoid it, and I guess, is that our tendency we yeah, just want away that's from super it. Super normal, and and it's um, not just being bored, but also like the fear of being boring is a really common adult fear. So we just generally don't want to think about boredom at all because it's all of those aspects of it are scary. Yeah, it, it, it is. We don't want to be the kid that that nobody notices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although there's a funny there's a funny quote from actually Queen Elizabeth's party planner. <laughs> um, it says that she, what she does is she seats all the boars together because they don't realize they're the boars and they're happy. <laughs> so, so maybe if, you, that is if you're worried so about great. being boring, you're not boring. That is such know. a – but honestly, and you can almost imagine that table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is a messed up table. But nobody knows it and they're all nobody totally content. They're happy. That's great. That is such a, that's a great quote. By the way, when you're quoting Queen Elizabeth's party planner, you know you've done your research, Mary. <laughs> that is some very good research. Let's take a break. We'll come back and continue this discussion. More with Mary Mann and her book, Yawn Adventures in Boredom. Adventures in Boredom. What a great, uh, what a great undertaking. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Mary Mann. She is a writer uh, and researcher. Her work has appeared in the Smithsonian, the New York Times, The Believer, Outside Magazine. She also works as a private researcher and as a writing associate at the Cooper Union um, and is the recipient of the Rana Jaffe uh, Foundation Fellowship and the associate editor of the New York Times bestselling collection, Women in Clothes. She's got it all, plus the book out now, Yawn, Adventures in Boredom. And uh, Mary, thanks for making this not boring. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So interesting. So uh, such an interesting topic. I think we are, we're learning a lot. Talk about, um, I mean, one of the things that I, I read in one of the articles about your work was the idea of how bored we, we and how we associate boredom with long-term kind of monogamous marriages. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. and how it it actually be, it's like this burden that everyone's afraid of the marriage becoming so boring, and yet the paradox of we want our marriages incredibly predictable and safe, which would think you know would seem a little boring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it was definitely one of the biggest topics of research that I found was. Um, People, researchers trying to figure out what's the deal, why, why, why do relationships get stagnant? Why does, why do these feelings start happening? Did, did they, did they have insights? Is it, I mean, and I, it seems like, I guess you just, just, you got to do fun things. What, what's the answer yeah. to not being bored in a relationship? Um, well, I think it depends on the relationship. It's definitely about, um, like you said, sort of acknowledging that you you probably don't know this person the way as much as you think you do. Hmm. Um, and we want to feel like we do. We like that stability, that comfort, but it also comes at the price of, um, yeah, a little bit of boredom. So maybe just being more willing to see the mystery in your partner, I guess, is a cheesy way of putting it. Um, a lot of studies found some slightly more depressing stuff, which is yeah. <laughs> like things like um, um, jealousy, uh, um, drama, um, fighting, that kind of stuff keeps... Keeps it alive. Like, yeah, sexual stuff going. Um, and that's that seems like a not super healthy way to deal with no. it. No. I mean, more drama to stay... Physically connected. I mean, that yeah. seems like yeah. I mean, it explains ugh. a lot of yeah. TV shows and stuff. And um, I see it. I see it. I have clients that we we do this all the time, and some people can recover from a really good fight and go be intimate and connect, and and yet others, it almost is like the fight is what brings the emotion. And so, so yeah. boredom, because boredom is so deeply tied to emotional engagement too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're fighting, you're less bored, and there is emotion. It's just not this connection. Do you find that those people are say the words bored, like I'm bored? No. Um, no. What they, 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 they usually just have a complaint, not that they're bored, that their partner is boring or their partner mm. isn't interesting. Yeah. Or they've lost that loving feel. They've, like, they've lost that magic energy. Yeah, magic and spark are like yeah. two big words yeah. that we use when we're feeling a little bit of tedium. Isn't that interesting? Is there? Do you see a, a correlation then between? I mean, that that's just the marriage relationship, but I guess you could have similar parallels at work. You could have similar yeah. parallels just in your career movement. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's, there's. Oh gosh. There's so much to talk about with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure where to start. Is it, well, is it about purpose? Is that what we lack? Is, and when we're bored, is it, is it that we just need to kind of reset our view, our paradigm? Yeah, sometimes. There's the, so the purpose thing is a big thing, and that is why a lot of some researchers, I'm not going to say a lot of, but some of them, that's, that is the reason that they think that we feel boredom. I would say... I would caution, like, against assuming that every time you feel bored, it's because what you're doing lacks purpose and mm. you shouldn't do it anymore, because that might mean, like, you know, 
abandoning your kid. Yeah, sorry. Your you know, there's certain things. Right, got to go, guys. Got to leave you guys now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also just like momentary stuff. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes life just does get a little boring. And one thing that's useful, I think, is to know, is to be aware, and this is true in relationships at work and parenting, to be aware that the boredom comes from the situation, not the person necessarily. Mm. So you can use it instead as a motivating force to to liven up things with that person, to help each other through this. Yeah. I think other other people are probably our best, our best um, I don't know, partners in crime to sort of fight boredom. Like be- talking to other people, being with other people, asking questions. Yeah. Um, definitely helps. Well, you, you, you brought it up too in one of your interviews that, you know, when you're coming home every day and you're watching Netflix together... It's not yeah. like it's not interesting, but over time it could become boring. Yeah, and I then mean, it's, it's super common to experience that and call it a rut. I would right. say, I yeah, mostly. And then, but you might even blame, oh yeah, my partner's so boring because all he wants to do is watch Netflix. But you know, sometimes we just, my family, we just last night went up into the mountains to Snowbird Ski Resort and had a fun time and all of a sudden and no one was on their device we didn't even watch any netflix it was weird and then <laughs> but all of a sudden it wasn't boring it was just engaging yeah, and and nice. we reconnected to purpose again that's really nice i mean it does it does make us mix things up a little bit um and we have people have done and made so many cool things just out of that desire to mix things up a little bit yeah okay um, there's like actually this this anthropologist Ralph Linton who says that um he thinks oh gosh what is that exact quote from him because it's nice um he thinks that it seems probable that the human capacity for boredom rather than man's social or natural needs lies at the root of man's cultural advance hmm which is a big thing to say. It's huge. But it's interesting when you think about what culture is and the ways that we use it, consume it, make it. I mean, movies, plays, books, all these things we wouldn't really need if we didn't need to... To stretch. To change things up. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting. So it, and it, that, then it creates this incredible world, and everybody, it seems like, that are out on that cutting edge of stretching themselves, they might seem eccentric at a time. They might seem, you know, like they're abandoning other things, but their their need to not be bored is creating a, a different world. Yeah, it can definitely, it can be useful. I got a chance to interview um, several artists, um, uh, visual artists, actress, that, all that kind of stuff, and they all talked about boredom as being sort of part of their process. Hmm. Like, I, I guess that's it, too, is you're because it's it's an emotion. You're yeah. connecting to this emotion. And I guess that's your point earlier is pay attention to what that feeling is. Don't just avoid it, but like embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would like to say, too, like you don't have to be an artist for this. No. to be Useful. Um, one fun, fun thing that I came across was this tradition of tobacco readers. Have you heard about this? No, uh uh-uh. So there's these, um, there's like 250 of them still left. These people in Cuba who their job is to read to people rolling 
cigars in the factories. Oh, they just um, read them books? They read them books. And it was it huh. started before radio. So that that's yeah, that makes sense. what makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have they not heard of 60s. books on tape? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it spread to a lot of places and sort of, yeah, went away once radio started. But um, in Cuba, they still do it because it's been such a tradition. Yeah. And the cool thing, one of the many cool things about that is that um, it has been going on for so long that the work, I'm going to try to say this in a way that makes sense, the things that they're being read are finding their way into the work that, they're, that the tobacco rollers are doing um, in fun ways that then we see in culture. So the big example of that is like one of the favorite books that they were read was Account of Monte Cristo. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's why we oh. have the cigars called the Monte Cristo. Monte Cristo's. Because they lobbied to name it after one of their favorite characters. How cool is that story? And they're all, you can imagine the excitement of the adventure of the Monte Cristo. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Isn't that amazing? And, and so these tobacco readers, that, that creates, a, I guess, a passion and leaves the, alleviates the boredom of the, the tobacco roller. Absolutely, because it it's, a, it's a tedious and repetitive job, but yeah. it's also one that requires a lot of concentration. So you can't chat. Hmm. So to be read to was sort of like the big solution. Yeah. Wow. Is that – so what, Mary, after all of this, what uh, advice do you give all of us to, I guess, to to understand our boredom, not just evade it? And what – where do we go? How do we improve upon it? Take it yeah, somewhere. Um, I do, I, I'm cautious about giving advice um, just because I do think it's such a different experience for different people and different things um, spark people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so one of the people I interviewed was an accountant who told me that ta- he loves doing tax forms. It's like when he's the least bored in life. <laughs> he just whips through them and it's wonderful. It's so to be able to pay attention to how you're feeling in the moment and um, – what what does that for you? What feels, what engages you in that way? And then what doesn't? I Yeah, like you said, is really, really useful and smart. And not to be scared or feel bad about boredom because we all have it. Right. And I mean, even the idea that if it's leading to depression, that that could be telling you we could go work on the depression or deal with the depression. Absolutely. And I then that I even becomes to... almost a passion, right? Like you're starting to... You're starting to unfold you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. I actually talked to Andrew Solomon, who um, has written extensively about depression. He wrote a great book about it. Um, And he was telling me that boredom for him is like one of the things that when he notices that he's bored with everything, that's when he goes and talks to his therapist about Hmm. like, you know, is this medicine working? He goes and starts working out more. It's his his like... um, Almost alarm system. Yeah. It's his barometer or something. That's pretty yeah. powerful. Well, Mary, we, we love it. We appreciate your insight. Thank you for taking your questions and going deeper and, and researching and writing this book. The book, again, is Yawn, Adventures in Boredom. And uh, not you're not going to be bored reading that one. Powerful stuff. And, man, just learning about even the tobacco roll, uh, readers in Cuba. How interesting is that? We'll take a break, my friends. Helping you uh, be the good in the world by understanding your emotions a little bit better. We'll be back. I walked through the 
And I realize that everything... I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Uh, so do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring, um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting, what do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven, unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing? And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you, you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job, you're struggling with your family, you wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction, or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings we can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. Interesting stuff. Helping you be the good in the world. That's the goal of the show. We'll be back. Continue with us. Stick with us. We'll be back. <laughs> 